And now, with Sound Investing, here's Paul Merriman. It is an amazing story how the coronavirus changed our society, and uh, the, uh, the last chapter is yet to be written. Obviously, for 30-plus million unemployed folks, this is a very difficult time. Uh, I, I, on the other hand, there are a few stories I've heard that uh, give me a, a sense that for some it's, it has been a change for the better. I know for our situation, uh, the idea of going to uh, airports and flying all over the country to make presentations has always been daunting for me. And uh, as I grow older, I have less interest in uh, fighting with airports and airplanes and uh, and cheap hotel rooms. No, not cheap. But but you know that uh, when you're traveling around and making presentations uh, and then moving on to another town, that it, it it can get tiresome. But now, but now with the help of Zoom and uh, and tomorrow, I'll be doing a a presentation uh, using Zoom in, uh, to, to a group in San Diego. But it isn't just a group in San Diego. Because we're using Zoom, uh, we can open it up to, to large groups of people. And, and uh, there are some limits as to how many folks can come attend these things. But uh, um, certainly the opportunity tomorrow there would be 300 people. And then in the afternoon, doing a presentation, uh, also originally set up with a group in San Diego, the Choose FI, and uh, with the help of Jennifer Ma, who works with the Choose FI nationally, uh, we're doing a Facebook presentation, my first Facebook presentation. I'm really nervous because technology is not my... uh, my best suit, but uh, uh, Jen is helping me get through this, and I'm going to have the thrill of being able to work with uh, with Chris Pedersen and with with Daryl Balls, and again potentially us talking to to people not just all over the United States, but uh, Choose Fi has a following amongst expats all over the world, so that's very exciting. Uh, and the, the the possibilities, I mean, next week I'm doing one for CPAs midweek, and then next weekend I, I'll do another Choose FI one here in the Seattle area. Terrific opportunities, a big plus in my life and, uh, and, and my family's life. I, I, I will share another interesting story, a, a couple that had sent in, actually, one of the couples sent a question, and the question was interesting enough that I, and they, and they included a phone number, which I always appreciate. I picked up the phone and uh, called the gentleman. Uh, he told me their story. Uh, this is a couple who were both ready to retire, and uh, both have responsible jobs with uh, very large organizations, that's the good news, lots of job security, more good news, but they each have to drive more than an hour each way to get to work 
and back. And that is a pain in their life. And that pain was sufficient enough that both of them were right in the middle of retiring, and then the coronavirus forced them to work from home. And they love the new lifestyle because they're able to work from home. The new lifestyle is simply not having to travel an hour each way to get their job done. Now, I don't know how long they're going to put their... uh, their, their retirement off, but my sense is it's being put off as long as they can work from home. So uh, I thought that was a, uh, a, a good story, uh, a good outcome, and a good, and a good adjustment. And now I've got a whole bunch of questions I want to run through here. This is a question I've been putting off for months and months, and it keeps on coming. So Mr. Paul, can you discuss the correct type of funds to hold different types of investments? In other words, I have a regular IRA, Roth IRA, a taxable brokerage account, as well as my existing 401k. I need to know the best place to put equity funds of all cap sizes plus bond funds of all types for both international and domestic that will provide the best tax efficiency. And then he goes on to say, love your podcast and enjoyed the Real Money Talk Zoom meeting earlier today with Don and Tom. And there was another example. Um, I can, I can, I can do it over lunch. I can spend a couple of hours, make a presentation, answer a bunch of Q and A, and eat lunch. What a deal! Hell, anyway, I am not uh, going to um, uh, try to fake this because uh, there are people who, in parts of this process, have done a lot harder work than I have done. And uh, I know if you, for example, did business with the Merriman Wealth Management Company today, they have taken this asset class location to a whole different level than, uh, than what I knew when I was there. But here is somebody, uh, and here's a book. I want, you, I want you all to own this book. If you're doing, coming up with these kind of questions, this is your complete guide to a successful and secure retirement by Larry Swedrow and Kevin Grogan. Uh, Larry is truly one of, of my heroes in that I think he has done an amazing job of serving the individual uh, investor. So he has a chapter in this book, and I'm going to read part of it. It's called Chapter 10, The Asset Location Decision. And he talks about the accumulation phase. Uh, He talks about the order of preference for asset classes. Uh, He talks about the traditional IRA and 401k and Roth IRA. And then he has a long list of additional considerations. So I'm going to take part of this. For those who really want to dig deeper, I hope uh, you will uh, buy this book. By the way, I'll bet, I'll bet if you 
I did a search for Larry Swedrill and uh, the asset location decision. I'll bet you'll find an article or two that covers some of this same territory. But he says, when making asset allocation decisions between IRA or 401k accounts and Roth IRA or Roth 401k accounts, it typically makes sense to locate higher expected return assets in the Roth accounts and lower expected return assets in the traditional accounts. The reason is that it reduces the need for required minimum distributions from traditional retirement accounts. Remember, the, the Roth does not require you to take a minimum required distribution. The order of preference to fill the Roth accounts from the highest expected return to lowest expected return is as follows. Small value, number one. Number two, emerging markets, and that's equities. Number three, large value, U.S. and international. Uh, by the way, it's core and large value. Core would be a, a balanced. Uh, number four, REITs, both U.S. and international. Um, number seven, I'm not going to talk about five and six. They don't apply to but a couple of you. Number seven, commodities. And number eight, fixed income. And he says additional considerations. The most tax-efficient funds should be placed in the taxable accounts. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? Tax-managed funds will generally be more tax-efficient than funds not managed for tax efficiency. And you can get tax-managed funds that... At, at Vanguard and at uh, uh, Dimensional Funds and others. Um, the broader the definition of the asset class, the more tax efficient the fund is likely to be. For example, a total market fund will be more tax efficient than a narrow asset class fund, such as a small cap fund. A small cap fund that holds both value and growth will be more tax efficient than a small cap value fund. So that, that small cap fund that holds both value and growth would be what we call a small cap blend. Large cap funds are more tax efficient than small cap funds. Market wide and growth funds are more tax efficient than value funds. Multiple asset class funds are more tax efficient than single asset class funds due to lower turnover as stocks migrate from one asset class to another. This is one of the things that Dimensional Funds has done, is to, is to create funds that, that really do eliminate a, a lot of the taxable events that would happen if you uh, did if you did not put the small with the value with the large in one fund, it's uh, uh, it, it it offers some real advantages. The more volatile the asset class, the more valuable the ability to harvest losses. And the last one here, because not all foreign dividends 
qualify for the lower tax rate applicable to qualified dividends. The amount of unqualified dividends a fund distributes is a factor that determines if it should be held in a taxable account or not. In other words, maybe you should talk to your advisor. I don't think I'm going to read any more out of this chapter, but I'll tell you, there's a lot more here, and it is a small part of what this book has to offer. So uh, get yourself a copy. Here's a question from Mark. If I have Fidelity, Ameritrade, and Vanguard, each $100,000 retirement brokerage accounts, should I have about 9 to 13 recommended ETFs in each account for that respective brokerage? Or should I consider it in totality and uh, have a 3 to 5 of the recommended ETS for each brokerage account spread out amongst the three? Or should I use best of ETFs in all accounts? Well, that in a sense, that's going to be up to you. Now, at, at, at this point, uh, most brokerage firms don't allow partial share purchases. It would be easy if uh, they would allow partial share purchases like they do with mutual funds, uh, it would be easy because you could, you could simply own the 13 or 9 uh, different uh, ETFs and it would be uh, really very, very simple to rebalance. Uh, on the other hand, uh, most don't have that and so in some ways, you may find it easier if you break up these uh, uh, positions and spread them over the uh, three different accounts. Now, obviously, that then becomes a challenge to uh, try to do the necessary rebalancing. But remember, this doesn't have to be an exact science. And, and also something that's going to uh, be part of your decision is whether or not you are adding... Uh, more money to the accounts, because that will be a, another good way uh, to do some uh, rebalancing. Uh, I suspect what may make it a little more complex is if you're adding uh, uh, fixed income uh, ETFs uh, in these portfolios, and because you mentioned 13 uh, ETFs, it's very likely that you are. I think it's also important to, uh, to, to know whether these are all tax-deferred or, or tax-free retirement accounts, if they're regular taxable accounts, but they are savings for your retirement, then you would want to take uh, the advice uh, from Larry Swedro into consideration, I think. And a great question from uh, David, uh, age 28, he says, Paul, thank you so much for the financial education and for your time. In the interest of keeping it short, here is my question. You can't even imagine, David, when I see somebody say, I'm going to keep it short. This is six lines long. That is perfect for me. He says, as a 28-year-old 20 investor with a 40-year time horizon, 
Why shouldn't I put all of my Roth IRA into more volatile asset classes with historically greater returns like small cap, small cap international, and emerging markets rather than deploy ultimate buy and hold strategy using 10 holdings? Is the fact that I'll be putting zero of my money into fixed income for the time seen as being risky enough? Or is there a benefit to long-term diversification between asset classes that I am overlooking? Well, David, I am, I am really glad you asked this question because one of the most overlooked part of our website is uh, back in the corner somewhere in there is a link to the 2019 Merriman Target Date Portfolio Glide Path Asset Allocations. And what our hero, Chris Pedersen, did at that page, on that, on that page, is to show you from birth to 75 what we think, and I'll, I'll say what he thinks, but I totally approve of what he's recommended. Uh, the asset allocation should be for somebody who wants to be aggressive, who wants to do the right thing with these asset classes, the very asset classes you've mentioned. Uh, and you're right, it does not start out as a 10-fund strategy. In fact, at birth, I think it starts out with a three-fund strategy. And uh, please go take a look. We've got a link to that page in the write-up uh, for, uh, for this podcast. Thank you for asking. And from Jesse. Now, this is not a six-line question, but I will say, Jesse, great, great question and um, um, one is fun because uh, there is no answer, but I'll give you my answer. But let me take the first one that's easier. Uh, you say uh, that there is a strong correlation between low expense ratios and mutual fund performance. Your mutual fund and ETF recommendations largely include funds with low expense ratios. However, the International Small Cap Value Asset Class ETF, DLS, which is a wisdom tree uh, uh, international small cap value, has a higher expense ratio, 0.58%, than I would like. In order to minimize investment expenses, would you recommend substituting another similar investment with a lower expense ratio? He says, I am considering uh, an international small cap fund, happens to be a, a Vanguard fund, uh, with an expense ratio of 0.11, 11 1/100 of 1%, or Vanguard Total International Index, which has a 0.08 expense ratio uh, as a substitute. Now, the easy one for me to address is the Vanguard Total International Index, uh, which is a large cap 
uh, a fund uh, rather than a small cap fund. Uh, in fact, uh, the uh, average size company uh, in the uh, Vanguard Total Market uh, International Index is literally uh, 20 times the size of that small cap uh, international uh, Vanguard fund. So I want to throw the a large cap out uh, first because that's that isn't anywhere close uh, to uh, what the DLS fund is, and I and I think it's important to note that if we look back to 1982 and we look at small cap value internationally, this is out of the DFA database, that the small cap value has had about a 13.1 percent compound rate of return and the small cap blend uh, uh, over 11, and the large cap, which would be that, that total market index of 8.5. So, so would, it be, would it be beneficial to, uh, to pay more to get to the smaller size companies? Well, certainly in the past that's been the case, but doesn't always tell us about the future. Now, then it gets a, a, a little closer when you go to the, the international small cap at Vanguard with the 11 basis points. Now, uh, the, the companies at DLS uh, are smaller, uh, more discounted value uh, than the, uh, the, the, the Vanguard international small cap. And it, what it shows over the last 10 years, uh, and not a great year, by the way, for, for uh, small cap, whether it's value or blend, but the uh, DLS had a 5.4% compound rate of return and the uh, Vanguard International Small uh, 4.1%. I, I would see that as a, a reasonable a substitution, uh, but uh, from what I can see, DLS still has some advantages and big enough to, to, to justify the higher expense ratio. Remember, I don't have those numbers right in front of me. When we look back at the last 92 years and we look at large cap U.S. blend at 9.9%, that's basically the S&P 500, uh, versus uh, the small cap, I think, at 12 and small cap value at 13.1, um, a slightly higher uh, small cap or small cap value expense ratio does seem to make sense. Your second question, Jesse, is, is a fun one. You say, uh, now to my theoretical question, your recommendations for both the ultimate buy and hold and the two funds for life, and by the way, I would add the four funds, <laughs> four fund combo into this mix as well. But they look to history, and he capped the word history for efficient asset class weightings. For example, you show portfolio performance with only large cap blend and then with the addition of other asset classes such as small cap value based on historical returns. And my question is this, 
Why should we think that history, again in caps, is the best source of guidance for asset allocation? The other source that could be looked to is, in caps, the market. It seems to me that the market includes all the historical information as well as the wisdom and knowledge of Paul Merriman, Warren Buffett, and all the academic research, all the fund hedge fund managers, and all the mathematicians with supercomputers, etc. Also, in some instances, the market seems to give a more credible answer than history, i.e., History shows bond returns of 6% annually, uh, but the market shows bonds will return about 1.5% going forward. All right, let me tell you where he's coming from on the bonds. The experts say the best prediction of future bond prices is the current rate. And that would be very different than you would get with stocks, uh, whether we look at the market or individually. Um, when we look at stock companies individually, you can see the huge range of combinations that are put together to create the company and how all of those variables, management, product lines, competition, blah, 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 all of those things could lead to a very different outcome then the guarantee from a company that if you will loan me $1,000, I will pay you 1.5% or 3% or 5%, whatever it might be. See, the belief with the, with the equity, what makes the equity different from the bond market is that bonds do include a guarantee. For example, if I put $100 into intermediate-term bonds in 1928, government I'm talking now, as of today, that money would be worth about $600. If I put that same money into the S&P 500, that same $100 would be worth 600000 so when we look at equities, we're looking for a premium for risk. And remember the Besson Binder studies that we've talked about over the last couple of years. The Besson Binder studies show that 4% of the companies, equity companies, make a ton of money historically. And the other 96% on average make about T-bill rates. T-bill, about 3%. So you have just a one out of 25 companies is, is what makes owning equities historically so meaningful. And so we have no reason to believe that the future isn't going to be like that, that a handful of companies, then we won't know who those companies are going to be beforehand, are going to take the market to higher returns than we would get from a bond. But I want to go back to your idea that my ultimate buy and hold strategy 
is building a portfolio based on the efficient asset class weightings to get you the best return. That's not what I've done at all. By the way, that's easy to do. As I say in my opening remarks at uh, tomorrow, when I when I speak to the people at Choose Fi, the, the 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 reality is there is no risk in the past. All of us who know the past of investing know exactly what you should have done. What we can't tell you is what will happen in the future. Nobody can. Nobody. But what what I did, and I learned it from others. I, this is not something that I woke up one morning early and all of a sudden had an idea. No, this I learned from others. And what what these people taught me was that here are, here is this handful of asset classes. Will there be other asset classes that will be better or worse? Or are there other classes that maybe are better or worse? Of course. But what they said was, going back to the 20s, 1920s, that large cap blend, a combination of growth and value, um, did better than large cap growth. And that the reason that the blend did better than large cap growth over that long period of time is because the value did better than the growth part of that blend. And that uh, small cap historically does better than large cap. But here's the good news. If you put money in both large cap blend and small cap blend, it turns out you'd get a pretty doggone good return with both of them. And then you add some large value and some small value. And remember, the value did better than the growth. So the value would do better, a pure value would theoretically do better than having a, uh, a portfolio that's uh, all growth and value. Doesn't make growth evil, by the way. Doesn't even make mid-cap evil. Mid-cap is fine, too. But what the academics basically said to me, what I learned, was that there were 10 asset classes, large, huge asset classes. Obviously, large growth is the biggest of all. Those are the really, really popular companies that in really terrible markets tend to be really, really bad. By the way, in really, really bad markets, value tends to be even worse. Anyway, what these academics taught me is that we don't know which of these 10 is going to be the best and which is going to be the worst. We always know for the last 10 years, we know that for the last 20, we even know for the last 50 We can go back 50 years and look at the returns of U.S. and international and large and small. But the academic said, look, if you're going to have equities, you don't want to have all your money in one country if you're comfortable spreading it around to other countries. Because even the best of countries turn sour over time. 
so that there's great advantage of having some small, some large, some value, some growth, some U.S., some international, some emerging markets, some REITs. Turns out there are 10 different asset classes. And here's what I could do to show you how to make more money. Instead of putting 10% in each of those asset classes, I could say put 5% in large cap blend and uh, more than 10% in large cap value. Put 5% in small cap blend. Put more than 10% in small cap value. And so what I would do is I'd go through piece by piece and I would overweight to value based on the past. But it's easy to, to ask the question, is it possible Is it possible that growth will beat value for the rest of a person's life? Sure. Somebody asked on on the radio or the, I'm sorry, the Zoom uh, program that I was on with Tom and Don recently, is it possible for the U.S. company to fail? Sure, it's possible. It's not very likely, but it's possible. Now, we can, we can argue about the definition of what failure is. And uh, there are all, as, as we know, there are lots of ways to fail. Bottom line is this ultimate buy and hold is not the ultimate return buy and hold. It's a strategy that gives huge amounts of diversification, uses index portfolios so as to maximize the diversification, to minimize the turnover, and all those things that we think go to working in your best interest. But the history, if you want to, if what you're saying here, Jesse, is that the story that people tell me about the market right now and what it's likely to do do for the future based on a story they make up about the future that I know they can't know. They cannot know the future. Doesn't mean they can't be a good storyteller. Doesn't mean they can't be very logical and, 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 and think in a way that, yeah, that makes sense. Of course, I had somebody just a, a, a relative uh, just call me this morning and say, what do you think about silver? You think we ought to be buying some silver in here? Now, these are people who don't have any money in the stock market because the stock market is risky, but they read an article, and the article made it pretty obvious that there's big money to be made in silver. So I went through my song and dance and told them that, well, silver doesn't pay a dividend, and and silver... It does not have any reason to have an upward bias. As a matter of fact, it was the late 70s when I knew people were buying silver at $42 an ounce. So they've theoretically owned it since then unless they liquidated at some point. But it's worth a fraction now and it never paid a penny in dividends or interest. So I don't trust those stories that are made up about uh, the future and how the market should act based on that. 
I, I don't. Um, I do believe that one day at a time, the market is priced efficiently for what we know, and that what we know in the future is all going to be based on the unknown. Now, remember, Benjamin Graham said on a short-term basis, the market is, is priced based as, as is a voting machine. People vote one day at a time what the market value is. On a long-term basis, according to Benjamin Graham, the market is a weighing machine. And the question is, will stocks continue to justify a premium for the future? Well, in just a minute, I want to talk about that because right now there are a lot of people who are really, really worried about why the market is so high. How can I possibly get into this market when we see a disaster ahead of us, but the market is relatively high? In many ways, things seem worse than in 2008, but the market's not worse. Oh, sure, some asset classes are down this year substantially, 20 to 30 percent. Others, 10 to 20 percent. And some, one of my biggest investments is, 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 is down about 6%. Oh, and bonds, intermediate-term bonds are up about 7%. You know, we're old people. We got a lot of our money in bonds doing okay there. It's not feeling like a catastrophic market like it did in 2008. And there's probably a reason for that. In fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to jump into that reason right now. I want to talk about, because uh, I get this question, how can you buy into this market? How can anybody be willing to take the risk of this market? Well, let's talk about willingness to take risk. Uh, I've had a lot of people ask me recently about, about is, 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 is a particularly people who don't have any money in the market. Is this a good time to go in? And a lot of other people are asking, is this a time I should be getting out? But when somebody asks me about getting into this market, I want to know when you're going to need the money. Whether it's all of the money or part of the money, or you know, maybe you could take a little loss, but... No, maybe you need to make a little money that over the next year or two or three because you need it to meet your cost of living. And I would say for any money, in fact, what the experts will say is if you, if you have a need for money, you know you have a need for money in the next five years, don't put it at risk. It should be in a liquid form with an amount you can count on, like CDs or intermediate-term bonds. Now, the way that my wife and I look at it, we have a portfolio that's half in bonds and half in stocks. And so if we're taking out 5% a year, which is what we take out, if we're taking out 5% a year, we've got basically about 10 years of of liquidity that is maybe not absolutely guaranteed every day, but it's all government bonds or tax-exempt bonds. 
So, we have 10 years set aside in essence. But the industry says five years. Then the question is, what do you do with the money that you're going to hold for more than five years? Well, it looks like a lot of people are saying, okay, do I for the next five years want to count on CDs to give me the return that I need, which, by the way, could end up being a loss after taxes and after inflation. In fact, a pretty doggone good possibility it could be close to a pure break-even. No chance for getting ahead. But what about the equities market? What's the story about the equities market? It might not do well for a year. It might not do well for two years. You might end up at the end of two years breaking even for what you might put in right now. Okay, what's my choice then over the next five years? Well, the choice is, one, I could take no risk and know that I won't make anything, or likely won't, or take some risk and maybe do okay. Maybe I'll buy a balance fund like Wellesley or Wellington, you know, 40-60-60-40, which would basically be similar to what I'm doing, except what, what, what we're doing has some small and some value and some internationals and other things going on in there. But, but a lot of pay, people may be willing to make this risk in the market as part of a balanced portfolio. I don't think it's the public that's causing the market to stabilize as it has. I don't think this is about the public. I think the public sitting on the sidelines are getting out. I think this is another example of strong hands taking investments from weak hands. I've talked in the past about what happened after the uh, 1973 and 74 market, and for the next eight years or so, seven, eight years, the public was just so happy to get out and maybe get their money back. And yet it was a period of huge accumulation of institutional money. So there are people who are not worried about whether they get rich or the market goes up. Oh, who would that be? Could be Warren Buffett. One of the challenges for a lot of these people is that sometimes the market takes off and moves so fast that by the time you get in and you start getting your piece of the action, you would have been better off to take some of the loss along the way. I think I talked last week or week before about two months back in the 30s, back-to-back months that the market was up over 37% a year a year. So um, months, by the way, those were not years. <laughs> those were two months in a row, 37% plus. Wouldn't that feel good right now, huh? Well, no, not if you're not in the market. But there are people who aren't going to take the risk of missing that just because the market goes down another 10 or 20 or even 30% because their choice is to go get nothing on their investments. And another question uh, that I get a lot 
is how much further do I think this market can go down? Well, let's remember, at this very moment, the S&P 500 is uh, down about 10%. Yes, there are other indexes down in 20 and 30%, yes, but the S&P is only down about 10 And uh, before the bear market of uh, 2008 was over, I should, it really it started in 2007 and, and it bottomed out in, in uh, uh, March, I think March 8th of, of uh, 2009. But that that was about a 50% decline. And if you think being brilliant is going to keep people from losing what the market loses, if you look, and I've talked about this before, but let me give you the specific numbers. In the 73 through 75 bear market, Berkshire Hathaway, that's the company that uh, Warren Buffett runs, lost 59% from October 2nd to the 27th of 1987. It lost 37.1. From June of 98 to March of 2000, uh, it lost 49%. And from September of 2008 through March of 2009, uh, it Berkshire Hathaway lost almost 51%. So if we look back at the, the, of the challenges of 1987 and 1998 and 2008 and even 73 and 74, it, it, you, you, you might believe that we're at just as much risk today as we were then. And it's interesting because this is not a pro or con about about Trump. But it is something that is 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 interesting, and that is that he is constantly telling us how great it's going to be, how soon it's going to be, and next year is going to be an absolutely phenomenal year, better than 2019. And it it you know it could be that a lot of people uh, believe that doesn't mean mean it's wrong because he says it. It's just that uh, uh, remember what Ben Graham said that in the long term it's a weighing machine, but in the short term it's a voting machine. The market and there are a lot of people appear to be voting uh, for things looking better. Uh, on the other hand. As far as I'm concerned, when I look at those uh, tables that we put out, the fine-tuning tables, and if you've never seen the fine-tuning tables, I really want you to go to paulmerriman.com. I want you to uh, I want you to go to Best Advice, and under Best Advice, there's fine-tuning your asset allocation. That will show you one year at a time whether your equity is the S and P 500 and bonds or all value and bonds, or worldwide diversified and bonds, uh, or four fund combo and bonds, it will show you one year at a time 
all bonds, 10% equity, 20%, 30, 40, all the way up to 100% equity. Down at the bottom of that page is kind of the bottom line worst case that happened over that 50-year period. So when I think about how bad it could be, our portfolio, the portfolio that my wife and I have, it is built 50-50 stocks and bonds, which means, according to that table, that we have to be willing to lose 25% of our money. And because we're half in bonds, it suggests that the equities can go down about 50%. So, so that would suggest that we could go down a lot more. But again, as I said earlier on this podcast, if you need some money in this next year or two or three for sure, you might not want to have it in the market, regardless of how tasty the price might be. And for my last uh, Q&A here today, I want to respond to uh, Forrest. Uh, Forrest wrote me a, a long uh, email, and uh, I'm, I'm going to actually reference parts of it. Uh, it's, it's somewhat inspiring to me because here's a 25-year-old who is studying as hard as he can to figure out uh, how to take advantage of a huge opportunity ahead of him with his, uh, with his investments in his Roth IRA. And he said, uh, he said, I started with Napoleon Hill a long time ago. So this is the beginning of his educational process to become a good investor. And Napoleon Hill, I'm going to guess, uh, he motivated him to think in terms of being a success. And since then, he's read Ben Graham and Jack Bogle and uh, found my own inventory of amazing minds. He says, right now I'm waiting for the right time to start a Roth IRA on M1 Finance, focused on the four-fund combo. I have a portfolio of four ETFs for this fund that you recommend specifically in an article, and I'm ready to go for it. That right time may have been on March 23rd. By the way, he wrote to me on April 29th. He says that right time may have been on March 23rd that I missed, but it may also be coming soon, and I'm not worried. I am just so excited to start something now at age 25 with this knowledge that I have. I'm sure you will hear from me again in the future with many more questions and comments. But for now, could you help me make the decision whether to contribute at the beginning of each month as a dollar cost averaging technique uh, or a yearly amount at the beginning of each year? All right, Forrest. Dollar cost averaging. Let's just assume for a second that you put the money in the very first day that you could over the next 40 years, 
Let's say you put in $6,000 a year. That may be more than you can do right now, but let's just assume that. And that you got a 10% compound rate of return versus waiting till the end of the year, end of the calendar year, so that instead of your money compounding for 40 years, it compounds for 39. What's the difference? Well, believe it or not, that extra $6,000 that you put in, because you did it at the first of the year instead of the end of the year, was 2.66 versus 2.41. There's a $250,000 difference. An extra $6,000 translated into uh, an extra, let's say you're taking out 4% a year, starting to sound like an extra $10,000 a year income for the rest of your life. So, I didn't give it to you on a monthly versus an annual, but I'm just telling you that when you got a chance, if you can, you get it in there as early in the year as possible. Now, there are going to be some years you wish you'd waited because the market went down before it went up. Remembering that in most years, the market does end up, up. Uh, and so uh, that, is a, that is actually dollar cost averaging, except instead of dollar cost averaging $500 a month, you dollar cost average $6,000 once a year. So if you right now, for example, had this $6,000, I'd say do it now and start saving $500 a month so you can fund next year's as early in the year as possible. If you want to take a second and uh, drop me a, uh, a note, we're going to have a staff meeting, company-wide meeting. By the way, it's a very small company, but it's going to be company-wide uh, to talk about all of our uh, projects we're working on now, as well as making some plans for the future. Uh, again, it's a, a, a Zoom opportunity to be able to get uh, Asia from, from uh, Spain and, and all over the world. It's, uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to have happen. But paul at paulmerriman.com. If there's something you'd like to see us do, now remember, and I don't do much begging for money, okay? You know that. You also know that we are a 501c3 nonprofit. And yes, a few of the people who work for us, who work part-time, like Asia, uh, these people are paid. They do great work. Uh, other people, like uh, Chris and Daryl, myself, we work without any compensation. Your uh, your feedback is compensation enough for what we're doing. And uh, so let me know. Let me know what you would like to, to have us uh, work towards doing. I, I know that uh, high on my list is trying to figure out how to help more high school kids in the future because uh, they're in uh, lies a tremendous opportunity to uh, to get people headed on the on the right track, and that means trying to figure out how not to get to the 
high school kids, but how to get to their teachers. And we'll talk more about that. And uh, so email me, share your ideas and ways that we can make what we do better for you. Thanks for listening. And thank you for sharing our work with others. Stay healthy, happy, safe, and happy. That was Paul Merriman with Sound Investing. Sound Investing, soundinvesting.com, and paulmerriman.com are produced and exclusively owned by Paul Merriman, who is solely responsible for their content. For more information, free articles, mutual fund recommendations, and more, visit paulmerriman.com.